little Friday night walk talk here. Just a walk talk. A talk walk. <laughs> Funny how uh, walk talk cough. <laughs> Funny how it doesn't sound right to say talk walk. It's funny how some things just sound better. Walk, talk, talk, walk. Who cares? You know, something that's uh, going on right now that everybody's aware of is warfare, Eastern European warfare. And I think when I last spoke about it, it hadn't really taken off. It was just kind of building. And, you know, I'm, I'm just against war all around. On one hand, I, I do see the... As somebody who's never been to war... My dad wasn't in Vietnam. My grandpa was in World War II. I mean, I do see something noble about war, but I would never say that to somebody who's a veteran or been in war, because they all tell you how horrible it is, and things are so different when you experience them firsthand. But uh, there is something ancient and noble about it. But uh, there's also something horrible, a lot horrible, and the immediate, when you think about the immediacy of it, of being in that situation, there's nothing pretty about that. But I, you know, I don't have anything to say about it. Everybody's talking about it for obvious reasons. But one thing, the angle that people have been taking on it, and, you know, I've spent the last few weeks not paying attention to much of anything, because it doesn't do me any good. But last night, I just spent the entire night, stayed up late, spent the entire night just looking for updates about what's going on. And what, what's striking, and other people have, have commented on this as well, is just the number of people who make comparisons to movies and, you know, these, these fictional storylines. The number of people, and interestingly, they're almost all on the left, who are like, oh, this is, uh, it's Harry Potter against Voldemort. Oh, it's, it's the Avengers against the blah, blah, blah. Oh, don't you realize that this is the rebellion against the Star Wars Empire? Don't you realize that Vladimir Putin is uh, Emperor Palpatine? You know, a lot of comments like that. And, you know, it's easy to be dismissive of that. And trust me, I am. But the other side of that is that that's people's mythology. And people have always viewed big events that way. Because you see this on the right wing, too. And I've seen an increase in this in the last few years. You know, along with people who are otherwise secular becoming more and more part of this new Christian movement, which I think it's kind of, I think it kind of plateaued in the last year or so, and it wouldn't surprise me if we see a change in that. It wouldn't surprise me if we see a number of people kind of lose their newfound faith, or at least fewer people becoming attracted to that, because it was kind of a new jewel to people. It was kind of just a new identity signifier to be like, oh, I used to be part of this social circle that thought Christians were uncool. So what's the cool, rebellious, antagonist, antagonistic thing to do? Well, I'm going to become a Christian. You know, I think that motivated a lot of people, and you can't sustain that. 
But the point I'm getting at is, in the same way we're seeing these events get mythologized as, oh my god, it's Harry Potter in Hogwarts against Voldemort. In the same way that it's easy to dismiss that, I mean, you see on the right, where people will be like, this is good versus evil. This is biblical. So it's like people draw from mythology one way or the other. You know, for one person it's Star Wars, for somebody else it's the Bible. And you're doing the same thing. So, you know, you shouldn't be too dismissive of people doing that as I trip. Um, you shouldn't be too dismissive of people kind of mythologizing real events, because it's what we've always done. It's what humans have always done. I'm sure that people would have been doing the exact same thing in their own terms a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago. I think people always tend to view things that way. But uh, it is silly. <laughs> you know, I, I try not to be too dismissive of it, but it is silly when you see grown adults who are like, oh, this is like a Marvel movie. Oh my God, this is like a Marvel movie. And it's like, yeah, I understand why your brain is doing that. But, you know, we saw that really pick up the last five or six years. We saw that way of thinking intensify where, you know, a lot of people viewed Trumpsfeld that way. I remember right when Trumpsfeld got elected, a lot of people were framing it as the Star Wars resistance, which is new Star Wars, which is funny. Like in the old Star Wars movies, it was the rebellion against the Empire, but the new movies it was called The Resistance. So I thought it was kind of perfect that people were framing their little personal war against Trumpsfeld as the Resistance, the Star Wars Resistance, because it's new Star Wars. And it, it is just so perfect that people would use a new Star Wars reference. Because if you're using new Star Wars as your mythology, I mean, that's a whole other level. I will dismiss that. But we saw that really pick up during Trumpsfeld, where he became the essence of evil to people. He became the villain. And they started to see their lives and, and him and everything he represented in those terms. And then uh, now it just seems to be everywhere, in, in every way. You know, like I said, I know of a lot of people on the right wing who uh, continually make the point that, like, oh, don't you realize the left is genuinely evil and satanic? That, I saw people doing that at that long forgotten now, because everything moves so fast, but... When all those people died at the uh, Tavis Scott concert, a lot of people's response that I saw was like, oh, that's what they get for going to an evil event. That's what they get for going to an evil event. Look at the imagery they're using. It's satanic. Which is silly. It's a freaking concert. Yeah, I get the... I, I know how it looks. I saw how the, the concert decorations looked. But don't forget what it is to go to a concert. You know, if there's a if, if a bunch of people get trampled 
in the mosh pit at a Slayer concert, are you going to be like, well, that's what they get for going to a Slayer concert. It's satanic. It's just a silly way. You know, you you become an old church lady when you think that way, you know, no matter what it is, no matter what your view is. But, uh, but the point is, like, the bigger theme there is that people have gotten increasingly into this good versus evil way of thinking. And no matter what your mythology is, no matter what terms you use, that's your way of thinking. You know, the holy versus the satanic, the heroes versus villains. But, uh... It can shift so easily. You know, your view on that stuff can shift so easily, and that's why you should never... You know, even though I... I mean, this is what I always say about it. It's like... We got into this view of things for a number of years where the idea was like... There's no absolute good and no absolute evil. There's a gray area. And as I've talked about, you know, that's where the anti-hero... The popularity of the anti-hero became big. Like, starting around the mid to late 80s... And then it, it went full bloom in the 90s. A lot of stories revolved around like this sort of conflicted gray area anti-hero. The main character's not perfect. Even in superhero comics, like image comics and all that, it was like, well, the, the superhero, he's not really a superhero. He's a guy with problems, but he's gonna do heroic things kind of in spite of that. That became very popular, and the idea was that he's not completely good, but he's doing good things. And a lot of that was kind of a response to, you know, the storylines that had been around before, you know, leading in the decades leading up to that, which was more like, we have heroes and villains, and the heroes are just good. But people got bored by that. People got bored of the Superman sort of character. Where it's like, yeah, I'm kind of sick of the hero just being perfect and nice and decent all the time. But, you know, the issue with all that is that, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be like, oh, it's a story of heroes and villains. It's like you can have points of reference that are absolutely good and absolutely bad. And also include the gray area in that, too. You, know, you can include all of it. And, uh, I don't know, the way that people think now in terms of, like, it's, things are either absolutely good or absolutely evil. Someone, or a political party, or a group of people, they're either all good or they're all bad. And, uh, you know, as that way of thinking has really escalated in in recent years i think we're at a point now where we have so much information and so many points of reference that we can include all of those we can include the entire spectrum and uh you know, i was talking to a friend of mine i have a friend of mine tony he's a polish dude from the bronx or he's from chicago but he lives in the bronx and we were talking about something mafia-related, because that's how I know him. And we were talking about how in the mafia, and I won't go too far into it, I always say that, and then I do, but... You know, in the mafia, 
there are these kind of conservative and liberal factions, especially historically. And one of the most well-known mafia bosses in U.S. history, Joe Bonanno, wrote an autobiography. And he referred to there being conservative, and these are his terms, he referred to there being conservative and liberal factions within the mafia hierarchy. And how there was constant, there was kind of a constant back and forth, constant political tension between the conservative and liberal mafia factions. And in a mafia context, the conservative faction, they were the, the Sicilian traditionalists. They were the guys whose families came from mafia lineage, and they wanted to keep things kind of how they'd always been. The way the mafia operated should be the way it's always been. And even the Godfather, in its own way, hits upon this. But it's true. It, it, you know, as much as the Godfather has promoted certain myths that aren't very accurate about the mafia, there's also a lot of themes in it that are accurate. As someone who's obsessed with the subject and studies it way more than anybody ever should, The Godfather does hit upon some themes, and that's one of them, which is that uh, you know there are, there, is, there are these sort of traditional factions, conservative factions, as Joe Bonanno called them, and uh, there's this constant back and forth between them, between the liberal and conservative factions. Um, trying to get back to my point, started talking about the mafia and launched into this. But uh, I was talking to Tony about it, my friend Tony, and he was saying how, you know, a lot of it's this sort of like point of view thing where in the history of the mafia, you'll come across stuff where a certain like traditionalist didn't like something. A good example is there was an early mafia leader named Salvatore Maranzano, and he was very opposed to Al Capone becoming a member because Al Capone was a Neapolitan and he'd been involved in prostitution rackets. And in the traditional mafia, they didn't bring in Neapolitans because they were Sicilian and there's a lot of ethnic difference and rivalries there. But they also were very opposed to men running prostitution rackets. The mafia didn't believe in, in bringing in pimps. And so the, this, guy, this early guy, Maranzano, was opposed to Al Capone for that reason. Um, but, uh, you know, as Tony pointed out to me, he's like, if, if Al Capone had been an ally of Maranzano, because they weren't, they were enemies, But if Al Capone had been Maranzano's pimp, not that he would pimp Maranzano, but if he had been a pimp who was allied with or worked for Maranzano, he very well might have felt differently. And he used the comparison of what's going on in Ukraine, Tony did. He said, you know, imagine if Trump's felt, and I don't, even, I don't know what Tony's politics are, but he said, uh, you know, imagine if Trump's felt was the one involved with this situation going on in Ukraine. Because the way conservatives and right-leaning people are reacting to Joe Obama bin Biden's response is that he can't do anything right. One of the reasons we're in this mess is because Joe Obama bin Biden is our president right now. But you can just imagine how the tables would turn if Trumpsfeld was in his position, even if he was doing the exact same thing. Not that he would be doing the same exact thing, but just no matter what he would be doing, 
there'd be a lot of people on the right who would be in favor of Trump's failed response. And the left would be opposed to it. Even if he were doing the same exact thing Biden is doing right now, there would be this sort of eye of the beholder effect. I thought that was a very good point. You know, I think that people, it doesn't even matter like what's going on in Ukraine and how the U.S. is reacting to it, how the U.S. government is reacting. It, it really just, you know, if, if your guy was the one in power, that would dictate how you respond to it. And so that's important to remember in all this. And uh, when he said that, I was like, you know what? That's a really good point. That is a really good point. How much of this really just depends on your biases, biases. And, uh, you know, and the reality is, like, I, I really have nothing to add or take from it. It's interesting. But, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't know what it is to be in that part of the world. I'm opposed to war and, and unnecessary death of any kind. That's a core part of my belief system. So, so I in no way uh, support it. And as much as I try to wrap my brain around some of the underlying politics, and as I said in the last episode, I do have a little bit of this Russian sympathy. And that's not new. I think anybody who's talked to me about world events over the last 10-15 years would know this where I do have a little bit of this Russian sympathy just they seem to stand for they seem to stand on their own and Putin you know has, has set himself apart from the rest of Europe from the United States and there is something that I respect about that because I don't really like this cartel. I don't like this Western cartel that's been in power. I have issues with our empire. And I don't entirely love what it represents at this point. So on that level, I do have this sort of odd respect. And it is, it is a very strange respect. I wouldn't call it admiration. I would just say it's a strange respect. Where it's like, oh yeah, Putin and Russia have taken quite a stand. They keep us on our toes, like a good competitor does. You know, like if you're in a competition with somebody, you often want to be kept on your toes because it pushes you to do better. But as far as what's going on, no, I, I no way. I, I can't. I, I wouldn't even be able to. I wouldn't even be able to begin to find... I, I wouldn't even know where the path begins to respect what Putin is doing or what's happening there. But I don't think that we should be involved. I mean, you think about the, the people over there. Because I grew up in the Seattle area where there's a lot of Russians, a lot of Eastern Europeans... And it's funny how, you know, like my buddy Miles grew up in the Chicago area, at least when he was a teenager. And when I first met him, he was always referring to Polish people. Interestingly, my buddy Tony is Polish. 
and from Chicago. And that speaks to my point, which is that Miles, having grown up in Illinois and Chicago, was always talking about Polish people. And I, I've had so, such little experience with Polacks. Like, even though there are a lot of Eastern Europeans, Ukrainians, Russians in the Seattle area where I lived, there were no Polacks. And when I used to hear Polish jokes growing up, they made no sense to me. You know, a lot of jokes are like, oh, a Polak walks into a bar. And like, as a little kid, I barely even knew what that was. I think it took me about five years of coming across Polak jokes to even know that that was referring to Polish people. <laughs> and, and when I met Miles, it all kind of clicked. Or I was like, oh, yeah, there's certain parts of the U.S., where there are high concentrations of Polish people. And from talking to Miles, like a lot of his friends were Polish. Like he'll tell me about some kid that he went to school with and he'll be like, oh yeah, he was this Polish dude. And that's a type of dude there. But not in the part of the country where I grew up. And if you grew up in Chicago, you see first and second generation Polish immigrants differently from the way you see yourself. And I do relate to that with Eastern Europeans where growing up in the Seattle area, very white, very European-American. As far as the United States goes, the Pacific Northwest is, you know, one of the most Euro European-American populations. But we saw the Russians as different. We saw the Ukrainians as different. Like we had some, we had some work done on our house. Like somebody, somebody like built a deck on our house, and it was these Ukrainian guys. So they, it was just something you came across all the time. And they had their own little community. They had their own little immigrant community too. But you know, even though you saw them differently, like even differently than Scandinavians, like. My family had some some Swedes live with us for a while. We had a, a Swedish exchange student. One of my best friends growing up had like three. Like he didn't have any siblings, so his family basically just imported these Swedish exchange students to be his de facto older brother for like five years straight. So I knew a lot of Swedes through that. I have a cousin. You know, I have a cousin in Sweden who would visit us. And uh, what's interesting, though, is like even though it, they didn't speak my language, even though these Swedes were different, I didn't really see them as different. Like, yeah, they had accents. They lived in a different part of the world. They would talk about food and different, you know, just different things, things they did that were different. But I didn't think of them as that different. Whereas, you know, the Russians and Ukrainians in the Seattle area, I did see them as different. I didn't just see them as white people. I was like, that's a different kind of person. They look different. I can immediately recognize them. Even if I never hear them speak, even if I don't know their name, there's a decent chance that if I look at an Eastern European person... There's a howling dog. But there's a decent chance that if I look at an Eastern European person, I'll be able to tell just from looking at them. Oh, those are coyotes. You hear that? I'm going to walk toward it so you can hear it better. Yeah, those are coyotes. 
I think it was a dog that howled, and then the, the dog released the coyote yelps. Yeah, they sound so crazy. They, they look, coyotes look the way they sound. Like coyotes, they always look like their fur is falling off. They always look mangy, skinny. They kind of look the way they sound. And uh, anyway, back to Russians. <laughs> they look the way they sound too. You know, Eastern Europeans, they, they're like coyotes. <laughs> Where you just immediately recognize them. And I don't look at them and go, oh, it's, it's fellow white people. Yeah, they, they have fair skin. I don't look at them and say they're not white. Like if I had to describe the way they look, they're white people. But we've gotten into that weird view, you know, it kind of goes back to the, the Whoopi Goldberg controversy a few weeks ago, which is now long forgotten, like everything. But her saying, like, well, the, in World War II, it was just white people killing white people. You know, that sort of, I don't know if you'd call that reductionist, but just breaking things down to these very modern American sociological terms where that's the that's the the full extent of someone's identity. Oh, they're just white people. When that's not the case. I've said this before, but it's like I like to know where people come from. Like someone could be my childhood best friend and my my childhood best friend was uh, half German, half Irish. I knew that. It's not that I thought he was different from me, but it. But I. I also knew that something about that made him a little bit different. And you know, for all intents and purposes, we're two white kids growing up in the same suburban town. We don't think about each other that way, but it would come up. We were both interested in that. It would just come up naturally. German Irish. I'm not German Irish. And especially when we get into different nationalities. Like, to me, Irish people are not Russians. And I think you'd have to have brain damage to think that. But, you know, that way of thinking, of just reducing everybody to these, to their skin color, has really fucked up our view of the world. And Bill Maher was talking a little bit about this. I saw a clip of, you know, I, I'm a big Bill Maher fan. I've always liked him. And Bill Maher was talking about this and said, uh, he was talking about China and the way that the modern left has basically blocked people from criticizing China because to do that is racist. And, he was, and, and Bill Maher's point was, you know, the entire country is Chinese. So that means you can't criticize their government. Like the idea is that like, oh, because criticizing China is by default criticizing certain Chinese people, you can't criticize them because that is a criticism of all Chinese people, but you can't separate the Chinese identity from the country of China, because that's what it is. But we saw this with, uh, when Coronavi was new, 
where like you couldn't speculate as to the origins of coronavirus coming from Wuhan because to do so was an indictment of all Chinese people everywhere. And so he got into this way of thinking where you can't criticize certain nations because those nations are made up of a certain ethnicity. And that's just such an insane way of thinking. But yet we've seen where people do that about Russians. We've seen where the level of Russia-phobia in mainstream America is just completely accepted. And it's accepted in large part because Russians are considered white. Because Russian people have fair skin, the mainstream media, for example, has no problem just blasting Russia all the time. And how that's such a pathological way of thinking. Meanwhile, here I am, I'm white. And I'll be the first one to tell you, fair skin or not, Russians are a different type of person. Ukrainians are a different type of person. Polacks are a different type of person. Not in a dehumanizing way, not less of a person. They're simply different. But to view the world using these manufactured American points of reference of like white people, black people. It's no way to view the world and all of its cultural and ethnic nuances. You can't view national politics through that lens, yet that's what we do here now. And I've seen where there are some people who support Russia. There are conservatives who support Russia. And I've heard this point made by more than one person. And they'll say, oh, conservatives only support Russia because they like that Putin is white and Russia is white. <laughs> and it's like, I think there's a little more going on. I think there's a little more going on than just Russia has conservative support in America by some conservatives because they represent whiteness. And even me saying, like, I have some sort of strange respect for Russia as a world power today, as, as sort of a rebel, has nothing to do with the fact that they're white people. But we view things that way. And we st we've even started to view history that way. Like Whoopi Goldberg saying World War II was just, you know, white people killing white people. That shows you that we start to revise history using those terms. So, of course, we're going to do it with current events. And imagine if Russia wasn't invading Ukraine. I mean, most people can't tell the difference between a Ukrainian and a Russian. Most people tend to think of them as pretty much the same place. But imagine if Russia was invading a different country that didn't look exactly like them. You can only imagine how that, that whole idea of like Russia representing whiteness, you can only imagine how much stronger that point of view would get if Russia was going into some uh, non-white country or something. You can only imagine the way people would be talking about it.
But as some people have pointed out too, what was interesting is Putin used this, he basically used the talking point of the American left to justify it. He said, Ukrainians, you know, neo-Nazis, Ukrainians are this, you know, and it's just funny that that's kind of become the justification people use. Because of course that has nothing to do with what he's doing. But that's become the talking point. As other people pointed out, and I think they're right, as other people predicted, and they have been predicting for at least a couple years, we're probably going to see more and more foreign wars, foreign intervention justified using the lens of social justice. You know, for years it was spreading democracy. For years it was like, oh no, we're going to Iraq to spread democracy. We're going to Afghanistan to spread democracy. And how that's sort of worn itself out. We've seen what happened with those wars. And we saw that with Afghanistan, where one of the arguments people were using for staying in Afghanistan was like, you know, protecting the women. Making sure that they live according to modern Western liberal guidelines. And uh, we could very well see more of that. Like we, I, I even I've seen some arguments about what's going on in Russia, where like, you know, people are like, oh, in Ukraine, they're more LGBTQ friendly, and so with Russia attacking Ukraine, it's an attack on Ukraine's LGBTQ community. So in that person's mind, a justification for helping Ukraine would be to help that cause. And I'm not saying people shouldn't even be motivated by things like that. My point is, though, is that that's become a justification. It's become a justification that we we should get involved in other countries. We should get involved in conflicts. You know, not to spread democracy in 2022, but, you know, to promote modern liberal values. And we'll see what happens. We'll see if we're even capable of doing that. But it's interesting that Putin kind of used that argument himself. Not because he actually gives a shit. The reasons, you know, Putin used to justify this, I don't think he really gives a shit about at all. But that's sort of the currency. That's the language that we're using today. Is like, we're going to do this for this reason. And that reason is so virtuous that everybody should just agree with it. Oh, what, you don't, you don't think democracy should be spread throughout the Middle East? Oh, you don't want the Middle East to have democracy, huh? Is that a justification for what happened in the Middle East in the early, mid-2000s and continued for years after? Was it really about spreading democracy? Or was that just a reason that was used to justify what we were doing for other reasons? And so don't be surprised if more and more international conflicts revolve around something virtuous like tolerance. Equality, equity, the new one. Don't be surprised if you start to see that. If Putin himself is kind of using that, don't be surprised if every country does.
land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 